My name's Tom. I'm one of the elders here at City Light. And for the, for the last 11 weeks or so, we have been going through our series in Philippians. And so we're in the last bit of that series of Philippians. We're actually in chapter 4, verse 1 through 7, which Crystal just read. But before we jump in, allow me to spend some time uh, praying for our time together. Father, we come before you desperate, Father, for you to do the work of, of making our hearts sensitive to your Spirit's call. Lord, that you would prepare us by removing distractions, those both physical and, and mental distractions, Lord, that, that take us away from the present. Lord, that you would allow us to, to hear from your word that which you want us to walk away with, Father. That you would guard my words, that I would only speak what brings you glory. Father, may we walk out convicted and encouraged with a greater love and affection for you, Father. We commit our time to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Louis Zamperini. Perhaps you guys know the name. A couple years ago, I believe Angelina Jolie made a movie about um, his, his life and, and his story. Um, I think that was even based off of a book. His story, um, basically, he was an Olympic runner turned uh, bombardier pilot in World War II. And his story starts April 1943. Louis and a handful of his uh, airmen were sent on a search and rescue mission. And somewhere on the middle of the Pacific Ocean, their plane has some mechanical failures, and they're forced to crash land in, in the middle of the Pacific, in the, in the midst of World War II. Louis and two other guys survived that crash landing, and it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on two little plastic rafts that they survived for 47 days. Now, the, the heroics and antics that, that went on on that raft are, are quite a story. Let's just say there was a shark, and it involved Louis punching a shark, which is amazing to me. Um, but after 47 days, they are rescued slash captured by Japanese soldiers. And for two years, Louis is held as a prisoner of war in a Japanese prison. And he recounts how one of the few strands of hope that he had while in prison was when, when a plane would fly overhead, the POWs would rush out and try to just squint against the sun to see if they can catch a glimpse of the decals on the plane. Because Louis was an American. He was an ally. And so for him, his, he clinged to the hope that one day his country, his people, would come for him. Louis, for, for Louis, his citizenship was the lens through which he saw his imprisonment. It wasn't all doom and gloom. There was a resolve, a confidence in his identity. And I think that's pretty similar to what Paul is getting at in our passage here in Philippians. The therefore in verse 1 is a transition statement. It's a transition from what we just saw in chapter 3. In chapter, the tale in chapter 3, he talks about our future heavenly citizenship. It says, whereas as citizens of hope, uh, we will one day have our bodies transformed, our lowly bodies transformed to be like Christ's glorious body. And so looking to that citizenship, Paul says, and with Christ as your hope, we see in, here in chapter 4, he's saying, stand firm. In light of that citizenship, if you're a Christian, stand firm. 
And that's, that's our big idea for this morning. Stand firm in the Lord. Paul goes on to explain four ways that, that we're called to stand firm in the Lord. We'll see that we're called to stand firm with unity, that we're called to stand firm with joy, that we're called to stand firm with a reasonableness, and then finally, stand firm with peace. Now, Paul begins his plea to stand firm with the account of two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Now, we don't know the details, but we know that there's some conflict between Euodia and Syntyche. We can infer that it's a pretty significant deal if Paul is writing a letter and he's naming their names. Now, I love the mental image. So imagine, you know, there's, there's no way of mass communication in that day and age. So what happens is Paul writes this letter. It goes by courier, eventually gets to Philippi. Someone stands before an eager congregation with letter in hand. And, and this whole letter is, is, they're singing their praises. Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi. He's saying, he's praising them for their faithfulness. Even verse 1 of, of chapter 4, he's really singing their praises. There are people he loves, the people he longs for. He calls them my, my joy and my crown. In most of this letter, he's telling them, keep on keeping on. You're doing well, keep on. And then just imagine the reader in Philippi gets to the, the tail end of this letter, and he gets to this sentence. He says, I entreat Euodia. And just imagine like all the heads turning and kind of staring at Euodia, <laughs> like whispers start. And he goes on, uh, and I entreat Syntyche. And then like everyone kind of turns and stares at Syntyche and the, the whisperings go louder. Imagine the awkwardness in that room. Awkward because in all likelihood, everyone knew what Paul was referring to when they heard the name Euodia. We, we see later on in, in this passage, in, in verses in 2 and 3, he's, he's really singing their praises. He said that they have labored side by side with him in the gospel, that they're fellow workers, that these women were instrumental in Paul's earlier ministry, and he praises them for it. So we have reason to believe that, that these two women were pretty well known in the church in Philippi. And in all likelihood, the, the issue at hand that's between the two of them is also pretty well known. Paul is calling it out quite publicly in a, in a letter that he knows is going to be read out loud. So now, due to whatever long-standing, likely public dispute was going on within the church between these two gospel, uh, gospel-motivated faithful women, Paul is writing and pleading to them to agree. He's saying, agree. It's interesting that Paul doesn't take a side on this particular issue. This isn't likely a major issue or an issue of doctrine. Otherwise, Paul would have taken and spoken definitively. But, but he simply says, I encourage you both to, in, to agree. It's interesting. He begins by addressing these two women directly, Euodia and Syntyche. You two resolve this issue. Settle dispute. Do the work of settling this dispute. And listen, we, we know what, what that's like, right? If we're trying to settle a dispute that we're in, like the first step is, is, is humility, right? It's humbly kind of coming before and, and, and kind of letting off the gas. And if we're honest, that's the last thing we want to do, right? The last thing we want to do is in, when we're in a public dispute, one that's pretty well known, the last thing we want to do is let off the gas. And yet that's exactly what Paul is, is commanding, is pleading with Yodian and Syntyche. To agree. Do what it takes to agree. Address the conflict head on. And we know when we're in the thick of it, especially when we're so convinced that our position is right, 
it's hard for us to see past that issue at hand, right? We're so blinded by uh, the pain and the history that the, the very idea of resolution feels like an impossibility. Maybe it's gone on for so long that you can't even imagine a world where that conflict didn't exist. Maybe you've just experienced rejection after rejection and hurt on top of hurt. And when you even think of that person, the things that come to mind are all the ways that they've let you down. You're so deep into it, and there just feels like there's no hope at all. That's precisely why in verse 3, Paul addresses those around these two women. He encourages his true companion to help them. Help them. He's talking to the church at large, the church that is around these two women. He's saying, listen, they need your help. They're so, they're so into it. They're stuck. They can't, they can't see a way out. Church, gather around these two women. Help them. This goes against so much of what we're taught, right? We're, we're taught, it's not your problem. Stay out of it. Don't get involved. And that's, that's not what Paul's saying here. He doesn't accept that notion. He says, again, in light of the fact that your citizenship is in heaven, that you're a family, that your brothers and sisters work together for the sake of resolution, for the sake of lovingly coming beside them, listening, praying, and speaking truth. You'll notice that the true companion here isn't injecting their voice into the situation for their own ego. They're not jumping in to even take a side one way or the other. They're merely injecting themselves for the sake of helping two sisters love each other well, to put aside this dispute. And, and that's why we do what we do here at City Light. You know, it's why we do things like discipleship groups and city groups. It's why we have a team of elders, to, to help one another along for the sake of unity. So if you don't have a clue where to begin, um, but in the back of your mind there are conflicts and issues that are coming, coming to mind, Talk to your discipleship group partner. Talk to your city group leader. If need be, talk to an elder. We're, we're in the business of helping one another along. It's why we exist, to, to grow one another up. E- Ephesians uh, 4, 15 and 16 kind of gets at that. It says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I love that last little bit, so that it builds itself up in love. That's, that's why we do what we do. That's why Paul is encouraging the true companion to come alongside these two women, to build themselves up in love. And this goes against the notion, um, especially in our day and age, that, listen, we're, we're going to keep all the negativity out we're all just going to surround ourselves with positive things. Um, quite frankly, that just doesn't work, right? We live in a fallen world. We're all fallen people. We're bound to hurt one another. And eventually, if we take this model of I'm only going to allow the positive in, I'm going to just keep pushing the negative out, eventually what's going to wind up happening, because of our very nature, we're going to just wind up pushing everyone aside. Because eventually everyone's going to hurt us at some point. And Paul cuts against that notion of, of pushing negativity away. Paul says, step into it. Step into the messiness and love them well. It's also interesting that Paul's not saying, just get past it, suck it up, move on. He's saying, resolve it. Don't merely move past. Don't sweep it under the rug. 
humbly resolve the issue at hand, Yodia and Syntyche. This may mean more pain. This may mean that before it gets better, it gets worse. But that's what true biblical resolution is all about. True biblical resolution is more than just an absence of active conflict. It's genuine peace within, between one another. And we all know what happens when that, when that root isn't addressed, right? The frustration and resentment festers on, kind of simmering under the surface. We begin to see every little thing that they do and say through the lens of past hurts. Soon bitterness grows into anger and anger into distance. What began as a whatever, let's just move on, is now turned into a full-blown conflict. So Paul says, Euodia and Syntyche, the two parties involved, resolve, church, gather around them, help them along. And we can all agree, yeah, great, yeah, we know, we should, we should resolve conflicts, but how do we do that? What does that look like? How do we do that? Paul says it here in verse 2. Um, he says, agree, agree in the Lord. That's key. The only way that we, have a stand, we stand a chance of this kind of resolution is if it's grounded in Christ. When we lift up our eyes to see Jesus, to see what he has done, then and only then can we experience the kind of agreement that Paul is encouraging here. A.W. Tozer, he's a pastor from early uh, 20th century, has a great quote that, uh, that I think captures as well. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So a hundred worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ. They are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. By becoming unity conscious, turning their eyes away from God and striving for just closer fellowship. Tozer's right when he says, when we tune ourselves, when we tune our hearts to Christ, to the tuning fork that is Christ, then and only then we will, will we be in harmony. So maybe this morning there are like specific names, specific memories and hurts that are coming to mind. Paul's taken it seriously enough to, to encourage these women to agree. How do we respond? How are we, what's our natural inclination towards responding? I'll tell you mine. mine. My natural inclination is, this is way too hard. I don't want to deal with this. I'd rather not even think about it. That's for another day. Paul's saying, stand firm in the Lord by actively pursuing reconciliation. Church, live as true companions and actively look to help one another pursue that unity. And remember, the reason, the reason that we can even resolve conflict, the reason that, that the, the foundation on which this all stands is that because we, as the church, we have had our greatest conflict resolved. Our greatest conflict was alienation from God, that we were at distances with him. Scripture says that we were active enemies of God, and that while in that state of enmity, Jesus, the, the only true and perfect true companion, he stepped in as a mediator to, to dissolve that conflict, to bring us into right standing with God. So Jesus is the one who has reconciled us to God, and Jesus is the one 
by which we can reconcile with one another. But that's not the only thing that, that Paul gets at when he says, stand firm in the Lord. We see later in, uh, in verse 4, he says, stand firm in the Lord with joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And you know, Paul's serious when he repeats it twice. And there's no conditions on this rejoicing, right? He's not saying rejoice when your circumstances are naturally joyful. Remember, this is Paul writing this command. He didn't exactly have an easy life, really, by any definition of the word. In fact, he's writing this letter to Philippi while he's in prison in Rome. In, in his own words from 2 Corinthians, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a, and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city and danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false prophets, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." I think that background is helpful because at this point, Paul has experienced more sorrow than most of us could ever even imagine. He's in prison, and through it all, he's saying rejoice always. Now, if we're honest, this sounds kind of ludicrous, right? At worst, it sounds disingenuous. How could Paul, he's in prison, and he's saying rejoice? Is it this false kind of veneer? No, to, to Paul... The object, that which he's rejoicing in, is the Lord. It says, rejoice in the Lord, always. In the Lord. That's how he can rejoice. Listen, I don't know your story. I don't know what the week has been like. I don't know the pains that you're carrying in with you. But it's in moments like these that both for Paul and for us, what we need to do, how we need to respond to both our circumstances and, and the people that God has put around us, is to remind ourselves of truth, right? This is what we mean when we say preach to yourself. It's take those things that you know, those things that are in Scripture, and remind yourselves of truth. So what do we know? What do we know about God? Well, we know that he's God, that he's good. Uh, Psalm 62 is an example. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. To God belongs power and steadfast love. What do we know about ourselves? What do we know about ourselves? If you're a Christian, we saw earlier Philippians 3, but, we know, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're citizens of heaven. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What amazing news. The... the, the what Paul is saying here is in order to rejoice in the Lord, in part, we need to know who we're rejoicing in and who we are in light of him. Rejoice in the Lord. Those are just some quick examples, but the idea is that we can rejoice when we see ourselves and our circumstances rightly. Only when we see them through God's eyes can we, can we follow this encouragement to rejoice always. We're adopted children of God, the God of the universe, and in light of that reality, we can rejoice because we've got God. We get Him. And at times, if we're honest, we, we struggle to believe that, right? 
We struggle to believe that the fact that we get God because of what Jesus has done, that we get a relationship with him, that that is infinitely better than a lifetime of joyful circumstances. What Paul is saying is, it is. It is the fact that you have been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of the God of the universe. Rejoice in light of that. It's amazing. So our question to us is, do we believe that, that God is enough? Or do we strive for a life of just joyful circumstances? And then what are the things in your life that you find are kind of com- competing with joy in the Lord? What are those things that, if we're, if we're honest, we'd say, I honestly find more joy in X. I think I find more joy in X than I do in just the fact that I'm a child of the God of the universe. And Paul goes on in verse 5. He says, he shows us another way to stand firm. He says, stand firm with reasonableness. Now, the word reasonable is, is, is translated differently depending on your translation. Um, some call it graciousness. Some call it consideration. But the idea here is that the reasonable person is the person who yields of their own desires for the sake of others. The person who yields, who, who lets off. I... Uh, I take the train into the city every day for work. And on occasion, uh, SEPTA gets backed up. Um, and there's just not enough seats uh, for all the riders. And so what winds up happening is a couple folks are forced to stand. And so I've noticed there's a couple types of riders on the train when this happens. Um, there's the guy who gives up his seat altogether, right? You see someone walk in, and you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to get up out of my seat, and please take my seat. Please, no, I insist, take my seat. There's that guy, right, who, who without even asking, he kind of jumps up and, and says, please, take. Then there's the guy who has a seat open next to him, and, and when, the, when the person comes, you know what they do? They kind of get up so the, the person can get, like, the middle seat, which is objectively the worst place to be on a train. And then there's the guy who has the seat open next to him, and when they see someone coming, they just scoot over so, so that the other person can get the objectively better aisle seat. And then there's the guy like me who's too busy people watching that they don't even realize the opportunity to be given up their seat. But, but the idea here is in this instance, what, 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 what Paul is encouraging and what we kind of see through these different types of riders is a reasonableness, a desire, a willingness to give up of our own desires, our own comfort for the sake of someone else. For the sake of someone else. Why do we remain reasonable? Well, we see it at the tail end of verse 5 here. It says, because the Lord is at hand. Because the Lord is at hand. Now listen, as a Christian, you're riding SEPTA. The thought process isn't, you know what? In light of the reality that the Lord is at hand, I am going to give up of my desires and let this person have my seat. No, that's not how we think, right? It's not how we operate. What we see is, and what Paul's encouraging to the reasonable person, that reality that in light of eternity... This, this, this momentary pursuit of comfort of our own desires is quite trivial. In light of eternity, in light of the fact that, that we are citizens of heaven, this is, this is fairly trivial. And so in light of that, Paul says, be reasonable. Be reasonable. But the key then is, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we be the kind of reasonable people that, that Paul encourages? 
Well, quite frankly, because Jesus was, right? Because he yielded of his own desires. He yielded of his position at the right hand of God. He gave it all up. He denied his own preferences, and he yielded for our sakes. Philippians 2 verse 5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, we, we can be reasonable. We can yield our own desires because we've received that through Christ. He has yielded of his position that he might come and enter our world, live the life we couldn't live for our, own, for our sake, for our salvation. We can yield because Christ has yielded for us. And finally, Paul is saying, stand firm. Stand firm with peace. Paul says in, in verses uh, six, uh, 6 and 7, he says, don't be anxious about anything. See, so anxiety, we all know what that is, right? It's that, it's that overwhelming feeling that that thing you're so desperate will happen is the fear that it won't happen. Or it's that, it's that thing that you really don't want to happen, and it's the fear that that actually might be right around the corner. It's, it's when life feels out of control and the weight of uncertainty bears down in you. It's the last thing you think of when you get before you go to bed. It robs you of sleep. Maybe it's the first thing you think of when you wake up. Like, how am I going to pay rent? Is the cloud of debt ever going to be gone? Am I going to ever be married? Am I ever going to have kids? Will I ever get ahead? Or is this just going to be a constant game of trying to catch up? Am I going to make a fool of myself? Though the menu of things that we can grow anxious about is all around us, what Paul is saying is to, to fight the natural tendency towards anxiety. But you, you see here that Paul is not merely commanding us not to do something. He's all, also commanding us to do something. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but do in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be, no, be known to God. Now, if we're honest, oftentimes when we think of prayer, we, we write off certain requests as kind of beneath God, right? Like, we shouldn't be annoying him with some of like, the trivial details of life. Or if there's, if there's stuff that I can kind of be doing on my own, I don't need to be taking it to God in prayer. It's not a big deal. But I think that line of thinking is really common, um, and I think it exposes a couple lies that we believe about prayer, that we believe about God. One of the lies is that he can be annoyed, right? We get annoyed when people make requests of us because we have limited time, we have limited capacity, we have limited energy and limited desire, but not so with God. He's beyond time, and he has no physical limitations. He doesn't grow tired of, of his children coming to him, making requests. Though we get annoyed, he, he can't be annoyed. We also believe that you know, God only cares about couple subsets of life, right? He's, he's going to care about if I read my Bible, if I'm going to church. He doesn't care if I live in like Roxborough or Chestnut Hill. He doesn't care. But what God is saying, no, like I'm Lord over all of your life, over every facet of life, over every decision. There is no decision that's too small or which I don't want you to come to me and seek wisdom. 
And we're not saying that, you know, living in Roxborough versus Chestnut Hill, that, that there's a definitive right or wrong. But what the Lord is saying is, come to me. Seek my wisdom. Come to me. And honestly, the, the last lie that I'm most tempted to believe is the whole, uh, do your best and leave the rest to God. As if we can do anything on our own. It's the God of the universe who causes the sun to rise and the sun to set. It's the God of the universe that allows us to sit here this very moment and take a breath after breath. There's not a thing that we can do on our own. So to say that, you know, there are some things that I can just run with on my own, I don't need God. It's like, no, the very, the very act of doing anything is by God. It's why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. It's a recognition that all that we have, including our, our day-to-day necessities and, and even the ability to sustain life itself, that all of that is from God. This is God's grace on us at, at this moment. This is why Paul can also say, uh, come to him with thanksgiving. Because when we see him, we see God as the means by which we have everything, that he has provided time and time and time again. It's when we realize that, that we can give thanks. It ought to drive us to thanks. Not to mention, aside from the physical benefits that God gives us, the fact that, again, through Jesus, he says, you're, you're no longer my enemies. You're my children. I love you. I care for you. You've been adopted as my children. So bring everything to God, and when you do, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, when you pray, God is going to answer the prayers the way you had hoped, and then you get peace. That's not not what Paul says. He says, no, when you pray, the very act of praying will yield the peace of God. Because it's in prayer that we recognize our need in God's bountiful provision. It's in prayer that we humble ourselves and make our requests of him. It's in this utter dependence on the very near God of the universe that we can stand firm with our hearts and our minds guarded. You see, once again, Paul gets at the source here. Though peace comes through prayer, the reason we can experience peace at all, peace with one another and peace amidst our circumstances, is because of what Christ's done on the cross. We can extend horizontally the kind of peace that Paul encourages because we've received it already vertically through the finished work of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made, both, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Church, we can stand firm in the Lord with peace because Jesus Christ himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. And it's in light of that, it's in light of the fact that Jesus is our peace, that because of him that we can stand firm in the Lord, united with joy, actively pursuing reconciliation, yielding of our own desires. In light of that, let's respond to this gracious God who has who's made this even possible. Let's respond to him over these next three songs 
three, three songs, through just singing, singing to God, lifting our voices up to him, thanking him. Might we respond with prayer? Listen, if, if you're here right now and you don't feel very firm, if, if you feel like you're being just tossed to and fro, the last thing that you feel is peace, the kind of peace that Paul is mentioning here, might I encourage you to just bring that to God, to talk to him with honesty and transparency, lay it out there. There are going to be folks in the back under the signs that say prayer that would very much like to pray with you, to be able to walk with you through this. And if you are a Christian, the way we respond is through communion. So if you are a Christian, there's tables in the front and in the back. Uh, Remember the peace that God has given to us through Christ by breaking off some bread that symbolizes the body of Jesus that was broken. Dip it into uh, the wine or the juice that symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. And then remember that it is in the Lord, it is only in the Lord that we can stand firm and have peace. So let's, let's respond uh, to what God has done and to the peace that he's given to us. Pray. Father, uh, we come to you, Lord, and Lord, if we're honest, at times we just, or even at this time, we don't feel peace. Lord, there are, there are conflicts and there's tension that comes to mind, Father. And the last thing that we can even think of is, is the idea of peace. Father, I pray that you would do the work of humbling us, that you would do the work of allowing us to see Jesus as the means by which we can have peace with one another. He is the means by which we have peace with you. Father, equip us to do that. Lord, we thank you, Father, that Jesus is our peace, that um, not by our own doing, but because of your lavish grace that you bestowed on us, that you've adopted us as sons and daughters. Lord, we don't deserve it. We just thank you, Father, for the cross. Lord, I pray that you're honored by our time. Lord, make us more into the disciples that you desire for us to be. That's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.